Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Tonight's program brings insights into the creation of Jake Heggie's If I Were You. If I Were You. If I Were You. (laughs) If I Were You. (laughs) Commissioned by the renowned Merrill Opera Program, which will have its world premiere at Herb Theater August 1, 3, 4, and 6. And this innovative new work is a Faustian story, beginning with a hero nearly dying. The devil, in the guise of a beautiful, seductive woman, offers him the power to breathe his soul into another person. You know the story. He can live forever this way if he chooses, moving from body to body. As the shy Fabian becomes a wealthy older man, a young, handsome brute, and eventually a young woman, the opera explores issues of age, power, sexual politics, and gender identity that are at once timeless and very much part of the contemporary zeitgeist. And you might ask, what is the zeitgeist, the defining mood and characteristics of today's world. And so for speculations about that, tonight we'll turn to our wonderful panel organized by Merrill Opera. Jake Heggie has been doing his share to energize the highest levels of contemporary opera. He's composer of the acclaimed operas Dead Man Walking, libretto by Terence McNally, End of the Affair, libretto by Heather MacDonald, and a continuing partnership with librettist Gene Shear, who did Moby Dick, um, It's a Wonderful Life, Out of Darkness, To Hell and Back, and The Radio Hour, and coming up, If, if, if I, I Were, were you. you. His operas have been produced extensively around the world, and he's based in the Bay Area and has also composed chamber, choral, and orchestral works, as well as more than 250 art songs, which are performed worldwide. So we look forward to more of the same brilliant work for years and years to come. Thank you, Jake. Conductor Nicole Paimont has gained an international reputation as a conductor of contemporary music and opera with numerous recordings, including world premieres. As artistic director of Opera Parallel, Paimont has uh, conducted many new productions, including world premieres of Luciano Chase's commissioned opera, A Heavenly Act, the commissioned chamber version of John Harbison's The Great Gatsby, um, uh, Adam Gorb's Anya 17, and Tarek O'Regan's Heart of Darkness, Jake Heggie's Dead Man Walking returned to San Francisco, and a new production of Peter Maxwell Davies' The Lighthouse, among others. Uh, Most recently, I saw a marvelous performance, uh, uh, was it last year or so, uh, of The Little Prince, where um, singers from the San Francisco Girls Chorus were involved. And then most recently, the premiere production of Today It Rains, based on an episodes from the life of the artist Georgia O'Keeffe, and it was fabulous. But the real authority on opera and context <laughs> is Dr. 
Clifford, or Kip as we know him, Kip Crenna, dramaturg at the San Francisco Opera. He's been part of the opera's music and artistic leadership team for... 40 years. 40 years. Here, <laughs> here. <hear. laughs> he was director of music administration for over 30 years. He's been awarded the San Francisco Opera Medal, the, the company's highest honor, as well as the Bernard Osher Cultural Award and the Star of Excellence Award of the San Francisco Opera Guild. And for many years, he was also program editor and lecturer for the Carmel Brock Festival. He lectures and writes frequently on music, teaches at the San Francisco Conservatory and the Frome Institute at USF, and moderates Opera Guild Insight panel discussions. He was dramaturg for the 2016 production of Wagner's Ring at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. He's also been a study leader for Smithsonian Study Tours, and I must say... When's the next one? <laughs> and I must say, but it's sold out, unfortunately. Oh, you got to be there. And I must say, he has brought wonderful clarity of meaning from personal experience to countless music events and programs here in the Bay Area for music neophytes and erudites alike. Merrill Opera Program producer of If I Were You is widely regarded as the foremost opera training program for aspiring singers, coach, coaches, accompanists, and stage directors. Each summer, about 30 young artists selected from international applicants of about 800 or so participate in master classes and coaching, and then they present concerts and fully staged operas. It is the only young artist program to provide financial support to developing artists for five years following participation, um, offering this for essential career development costs. In addition, only Marilla graduates are considered to be um, for for the opera's um, Adler Fellowship Program, where they have the opportunity to perform with the company on stage. Many of the artists who have gone through the Merrill Approving Ground are in wonderful roles today, including Anna Netrebko, Carol Van Ness, Deborah Voigt, Patricia Rossett, Joyce DiDonato, Susan Graham, etc. Thomas Hampson, you get the idea. It's a high-class production <laughs> itself. So I'm going to go right to the best uh, authority on the context. Kip, we'll start with you. Thanks very much. Uh, great to be here, and uh, thanks for that wonderful introduction on behalf of all three of us. Yes. <laughs> Feeling very, very flattered. Um, great to see familiar faces, and I think some new ones. And uh, I want to start out by asking uh, Nicole and Jake, the, the same question, which is about getting involved in this project to begin with. I thought I've got some slides to quickly remind you about um, uh, Jake's work here in the Bay Area. Uh, one of the things that always intrigues me about uh, working with Jake is that he is uh, sort of the, um, the antithesis to the old, old idea that modern opera w- could have made. That, <laughs> um, it's really this kind of thing that... Uh, we find, I think, for audiences going to uh, pieces by composers like Jake. We like to leave those pictures on the stage. <laughs> yeah, That's right. for the actors. And uh, <laughs> Anne mentioned most of this stuff, but I just, just to refresh your memories, um, uh, Dead Man Walking was 2000, and uh, 
Nicole conducted it here in 2015. Um, and with Jake uh, and Jean together, we've had three Decembers uh, in 2008 with the wonderful Flicka uh, in the main role. She's still doing that part now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just did it. Just where? did it down in San Diego. San Diego. And uh, of course, Moby Dick premiered in 2012. But to great success, been heard all over the place. Barcelona just recently, or no, not yet. Oh, uh, it was just out. in Chicago this past weekend. Right. Yeah. And of course, uh, that was done down in San Jose uh, mm-hmm. just earlier this year. Yeah. Um, Wonderful Life premiered here last fall and uh, has been, of course, heard elsewhere and now coming up with uh, If I Were You. So for both of you, I'd love to get your thoughts about getting into this. Um, Jake, your stuff's been done all over the world. You've been commissioned not only by San Francisco, but by Houston, Dallas, Mm -hmm. various others. Um, So when a training program comes along and says, would you write an opera for us? What was that? Experience oh, like it was you. an immediate yes. It was so easy because, um, hello everyone. Um, <laughs> I'm Jake. She's Nicole. Um, <laughs> uh, it was really, really easy uh, because I have had uh, an affection and an association with the Marilla program since I moved to San Francisco 25 years ago and started working at the San Francisco Opera in the PR marketing department. And so my job was to write about all the different programs associated. And I became really good friends with a lot of the singers in the program and, um, and Jimmy Schwabacher and Jane and Peter and all the different people that, that have been with it every step of the way. And certainly throughout my, I started off by writing songs for a lot of those singers for their debut recitals here and then started writing roles for people who were, you know, Marilini, as we call them. And, and now that I travel all over the world with these productions, there is not a single production that I go to where there isn't someone or several people who have gone through the Marilla program. So it is an amazing program. It's one that has nurtured and fed me over the years, and it was a way to give back and celebrate and shine a special light on that company. So it was really easy and exciting and terrifying and <laughs> wonderful all at the same time because it was their first uh, world premiere commission. So, And obviously this will be a great uh, opportunity. All these kids uh, I'm, were uh, new to the business and will be creating uh, roles in an opera by J.K. But that is part of the business now, to learn how to create roles because uh, a, a young singer coming out into the business today is going to be asked to do a lot of new work and they have to be familiar with the process, how you, how you work with a composer and a librettist and a conductor on a brand new score, how you create a role rather than recreate a role, which was the standard, of course, for decades, you know, most, you know, I mean, we got very complacent in the opera world <laughs> for many decades. And so it was about who's the next great Mimi or butterfly. And for a lot of us, that is still very exciting, but for an even broader public, there is this wealth of new work and if a singer wants to have a working career that's part of it to know how to do that as well and nicole for you i mean you're working with your own company that you mm-hmm. found in uh, opera parallel your principal guest conductor in dallas you're working on the professional level um, um a lot you were just in Hughes, uh, in um, seattle doing uh, mason bates new piece about steve jobs um so for you uh, uh doing a brand new piece for uh, a young artist program what was that like to to uh you know, Sign on to. I, I, it was great because for me, I don't see a diff, I don't treat musicians any, any differently that they are young, they are all of that. It's about the music and it's about what we have to do. And I think that, uh, generally younger singers, and I'm saying generally, are even more open to just creating something new and not afraid of it. Uh, they don't get, as you said, 
complacent about just reproducing roles. But I, for me, working with younger artists or older artists, we're just all working together to make the score happen. So I was thrilled. I was looking forward to doing. I love Jake's music, and I think I have great respect for the Marilla program and what they do. And I agree with Jake. Every time I'm con guest conducting somewhere, uh, actually this fall I was doing um, Silent Night at the Kennedy Center with the Washington National Opera, and the big star was one of the Marilini uh, graduate. And, ev and everywhere I go and conduct, there's always a Marilini somewhere, somewhere <laughs> there. Yes. So we'll be uh, looking at this kind of double cast. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, we're looking at these young artists to see who's going to be uh, uh, the future stars we'll all pay big bucks for. <laughs> going ahead. Uh, I want to talk about the, the source of all this, and, and I've got a few slides to show you about that. Uh, Julien Green, um, the artist of Si Jetez-vous, If I Were You, um, uh, and uh, a fascinating figure. I've got a little video of him, and we'll watch in a second. Um, I noticed this quote of his, which I think is really important. Uh, the most important thing we can do on this earth is love. What else is there to write about? Mm. Um, so, born, he lived the entire uh, 20th century. Born in 1909 in Paris to American parents. Uh, converted to Catholicism at age 14. Struggled with his face and his homosexuality his whole lifetime. Uh, in World War I, he lied about his age. He was only 16 and became an ambulance driver in Italy. Uh, but then he was found out and uh, <laughs> had to leave that. But then he joined the French artillery when he got a little bit older. After the war, he attended the University of Virginia, did not graduate, moved back to Paris. In 1940, of course, the war was brewing and he moved to America. He prepared radio programs in French for the Allies and taught creative writing at Princeton and Harvard and elsewhere. Back in France, he formally adopted the French writer Eric Jourdain as his son. <clears throat> In 1970, his battle with the what he called the intensely carnal and profoundly religious sides of the, his character ended when he renounced sex. <laughs> Sexuality, he told a French interviewer, is an obstacle that stands between God and man. Wow. Uh, <laughs> in, okay. <laughs> in 1971, he became the is first... Is that the problem? Really? really. <laughs> Look at that out. I haven't gotten it. That's... <laughs> He was the first American elected to the uh, Académie Française, and he never became a French citizen, interestingly, although it was offered to him by uh, Georges Pompidou. Uh, he died in, 18, in 1998 at age 97 and was buried in Klagenfurt, Austria, in St. Egged Church. He did not want the vulgar public fuss in his view that had accompanied the burials of writers Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir at uh, Montmartre Cemetery in Paris. Um, it's hard for me to imagine now that what would be the American writer whose death would cause a huge fuss at a cemetery somewhere? Yeah. yeah. Stephen King, maybe? <laughs> anyway, here's his grave up uh, there in, uh, in Austria. I am the resurrection and the life. Mm -hmm. And you see he's buried with his adopted son, uh, uh, Jean-Eric Green. So uh, here is a little a minute of video for, uh, that I picked off the Internet. Thanks to Nicole for helping me decipher, decipher some of this. Uh, my two years of, high, of college French were not quite enough to, to get all of the stuff he's saying here. The interview is asking him as he gets started about something he wrote about the Pope, which in this case would have been uh, Jean-Paul II. So let's just listen and get a little idea of what he was like, at least in his 80s. Nous partons demain pour fuir l'invasion de la province, monter à Paris, voir le pape. Autrement dit, quand le pape est arrivé, eh bien, vous, vous avez quitté Paris. 
pour ne pas, non pas participer, mais même pas assister au tumulte. Je n'aime pas beaucoup me mêler à la foule parce que je, je, je me perds dans la foule et puis j'ai une, je me sens mal à l'aise dans la foule. C'est ce qui m'empêche de pas aller au théâtre. Mais le pape, je l'ai vu admirablement à la télévision, dans une... Mais de province Oui, de province, près de Moulin. J'ai pris de Moulin et j'ai tout vu. J'ai passé la journée à regarder, enfin une bonne partie de la journée à regarder. Mais vous auriez pu être aussi bien chez vous, là, à regarder la télévision. <rire> pas de télévision. <rire> C'est que je l'aime trop. Je veux dire par là qu'elle me fascine et elle m'empêcherait de faire mes une fois que je suis assis devant une télévision, je regarde et je regarde et je regarde. Comme un enfant. Euh, oui, elle est en sorcellant, la télévision. Je lui reproche. <laughs> so we can tell from this that uh, he was a very religious person. He was a very serious person um, and reserved, I would say. Yeah. Um, Nicole, you mentioned he reminds you of your dad. <laughs> Certain the way things. He speaks. The way he speaks and the way he's categorical about no television, no this, no that. <laughs> so, Jake, how did you encounter this work of his and, and decide to make it an opera? Well, that's so interesting because I did not do the research you have done on him to find out that much about him. It's very, very interesting. Um, and the way he feels about television is the way I am with, like, social media and Facebook. I can't do any of it. I used to do it, but I can't because it's... It's, it's your whole day up, right? It's gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I have to just turn all that off. Um But I came uh, to this story uh, and, and to Julian Green uh, about 15 years ago. I was considering doing a project with a playwright in New York, and he suggested this book, which I did not know about. He said he was kind of in love with it and fascinated with it. And so I read the English translation, which I do not really recommend because it's not very good. It was not done by Julian Green. It was done by someone else, and it It doesn't capture the magic of the original language. Of the It's kind French. of leaden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the original French is fabulous mm -hmm. and, you know, masterpiece. Um, but this, the idea and the concept behind it just stuck with me. I just thought it was so fascinating. And I loved this idea of shape-shifting and becoming someone else in pursuit of something that was meaningful to you or in pursuit of trying to be someone someone could love or to uh, that sense of of belonging uh, somehow. And so when uh, I just put it away, it's thinking, you know, I have this list and I also have this box of books of things that I might pursue in the future. And um, so when Marilla came to me, this suddenly popped in my head because I thought, first of all, it's, it's perfect for younger people to do, for young singers, young artists to do, um, because it is all an identity quest when you're young. I mean, it is your whole life, right? But it's especially when you're younger. And in this world... <clears throat> Where, where we live with advertising and marketing so dominant, saying, you know, if you looked like this or if you acted like this or if you had this, you'd be so much happier, you know, encouraging you to buy your way into being someone else or looking like someone else. And, you know, individuals getting lost in the mix. And so it just, it felt like the right thing, especially if we could figure out a way to tell the story where like many of the Marilini would become that lead character as he sings his soul in, and breathes his soul into other personalities. So uh, I became familiar with it, you know, that, that sort of roundabout way, but it just stuck with me. And this just felt like absolutely the right project and the right time. What you, Nicole, did you, did you know about Jean Green? Uh, yeah, I actually had read the book because it's a book that often we read when we are in um, like high school. Or uh, yeah, so I had read the book, and I actually had, I was with Jean. Um, 
in Kansas City where we were doing uh, Everest, another opera. And uh, we went out one night and he started to tell me that he was working on this. Uh-huh. And he didn't tell me it was Julian Green. He tells me the story. I said, is that Julian Green? He goes, you know that book? <laughs> and uh, he was so passionate about it. And I have to say the text is magnificent. You know, there's one thing to have a wonderful story, but when you sing a story, it, you ha- it has to be worth the music that is written and uh, everything it, it's just Julian Green's book is beautiful I would say Jean's libretto is even more mm-hmm. so it is so beautiful so he just told me all about it and I got very excited I had not yet been approached by Merola to do it and I didn't know it was for Merola he was just working on this and but I do think it is I agree with Jake that it is a very appropriate subject for well it's very relevant you know opera nowadays we try to find subjects that are relevant still and that can speak to an audience. But what I like about this story is that it's more than relevant. It's universal. It's timeless. It's a story that doesn't is not about something that's happening in our society right now. I would I would dare to say it's even it's not about Steve Jobs or something very it's something that is beyond that. It's so universal that quest of of trying to be something that perhaps we are not, mm-hmm. just to be loved, mm-hmm. or trying to figure out who we are. So I think it's the perfect operatic subject. I want to say, Gene, uh, I agree. Gene Shear did it. It's the a magnificent job because he had to invent a lot. He doesn't read French. So he had to go from the English and what I told him. And we had a lot of conversations and he had to invent characters. Mm. He had to conflate things. He just took basically a few, few key moments and, and con- conceits from the original and created this whole new world that I found so riveting and exciting, starting with a, you know, a heartbeat in the orchestra because there's been a terrible car accident and someone is just coming is just being revived after near death which is Fabian and who's the EMT the devil who has just revived him so it has overtones too of gothic romance mm-hmm. like Frankenstein you know re- st- yep. creating a new life of Jekyll and Hyde shape-shifting it that's why it feels so timeless yep. and universal it feels very current because it is after all the Faust story and you don't have to look far to see people selling their souls these days <laughs> or to be pretending pretending to be something that they're not <laughs> for the promise of riches I have no idea what I'm talking about but <laughs> it feels current and timeless which are the stories mm-hmm. that I'm drawn to yeah. yeah so I've got a quick summary of the uh, of the book here and maybe all of this will inspire a, a much better translation. It really deserves a brilliant translator. Mm-hmm. So this is the publisher's description of the book. Uh, with I, if I were you, Julian Green addresses a fantasy that is without doubt universally shared at one time or another in the life of every person, the possibility of becoming someone else as one chooses and to exchange bodies anytime the desire strikes. Fabian is a lonely young man. Is I spelled right? It's, Fabi- is that, uh, it's Fabian, Fabian with an A, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. With Fabian. an A. Uh, in, our, in, in English. English. Yeah, in English. Yeah. Ah, okay. In French, it's with an E. I see. He's a lonely young man who mopes through a life too confined both materially and spiritually. He dreams of becoming someone else. One night, he crosses paths with an old man who introduces himself as Monsieur Britomart. It's, of course, uh, Britomara in <laughs> Jake and Jean's version, who soon becomes the access key to other bodies, other souls, other identities. He offers a magic formula that allows Fabian to exchange places with anyone he chooses. He does not hesitate long. So uh, talk about the decision to make, Fab- uh, to make uh, Britomar into Britomara. Well, if we were going to do a new take on the Faust story and to <clears throat> use the book as a springboard. We wanted to create, and it's for Marilla, and 
um, we wanted to create not only a big male role, but also very powerful female roles. Um, and there are, there are two extraordinarily powerful female mm -hmm. roles. One that Jean invented, Diana, the young woman that Fabian is in love with and is trying to get close to. But we thought a lot and we thought, what if Brumar became Brumara? And it was, uh, because I love writing for mezzo voices. I just do. Um, I know. <laughs> you and Rossini. Yeah, I know. <laughs> known a few good ones. And, um, and, uh, initially I had thought actually about writing Brutamara for sort of a queen of the night type voice, um, which freaked Sherry Greenewald out to no end because she thought I have to find two of those. <laughs> those are rare, like really rare. So I thought, well, let's find something that is, more open. And so I thought dramatic mezzo, which can also be even dramatic soprano based on the tessitura. And, um, and, uh, and the idea of shape-shifting and leading and misleading Fabian, you know, through, through the whole process, it just was yet another way of turning the story and making it more stage-worthy and operatic because mm -hmm. vocal casting is everything. It's the same reason that I didn't want to do in It's a Wonderful Life. I didn't want it Clarence, the angel, and George Bailey, two male voices all night long. I wanted it to be Clara so that we had a soprano and a tenor. And it, the same with, uh, with this one. I wanted vocal casting where I would have a female voice and a male voice, you know, all night long rather than two male voices. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. So this is a Faustian story, and I don't need to remind this audience about the operas on the Faustian bargain, but uh, and of course, uh, beginning with Christopher Marlowe's uh, play and the Faust one, those are the two, 200 years apart, these two sort of main, I call them the pillars mm -hmm. of the Faust drama. Um, so we've done lots of operas here on the Faust story, including Domination of Faust mm -hmm. uh, in 2003, um, Faust itself by Gounod, of course, many, many times, most really recently in 95. Um, Mephistopheles by Boito, we've done often. Um, and Buzoni's Dr. Faust, we did back in 2004, which is an incomplete opera. And of course, Rake's Progress fits in the category as well, which we've done uh, fairly often. Well, Marilla did it last year, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and of course, Nicole's going to conduct this. I've got pictures of all the people involved. Um, Katura Sticken will be the director. Um, and let's talk about the cast now. Fabian, a young writer and restless dreamer in his early 20s, filled with self-doubt. He feels unlovable and yearns to break away. He lives in a small apartment in the town where he grew up. His chance to go away to college cut short by his father's sudden death. Shades of, uh, of uh, wonderful life there. Yeah. And these are the two guys who are going to play this uh, part. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your musical characterization of, of Fabian? Well, I mean, um, first of all, this was a... a challenging project because I usually know who I'm composing for. Mm -hmm. That's been my, my MO all, all of my career mm -hmm. is to know who I'm writing for, for clarity. So I had to do a fan, I had to do fantasy casting, 
um, to think mm-hmm. of like who I might write this for all the way through for all the different roles, not knowing because it just it just gives me clarity. There's so many unknowns when you're creating an opera that the more clarity that you have. I was going to the, the example I always give is if you're a, imagine you're a screenwriter and someone comes up to you and says, we're going to do a movie about Eleanor Roosevelt and we'd like you to do the, the script for the for the um, movie. You say, fine. They go, oh, and by the way, we have Meryl Streep to be Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> well, all of a sudden you have great clarity. You know, you can do anything, right? It's the same when you know who you're writing for uh, with, with singers. But I always write for, the, I write the role, but I usually know who I'm dressing it on. So in this time, I just had to Im- imagine who that was. And actually that was helpful because it is a fantasy kind of mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, vocally, he's a, a, a lyric tenor. He, uh, you know, I wanted that youthful innocence of the tenor voice. Um, I wanted someone that sounded young and that could soar high uh, at certain moments, but also had clarity through their through their range. Um, we have some music to play for you in just a minute. He's but. got a, he's got a lot of yearning and ache in in him. So um, it's a I think it's a really beautiful tenor role. What's interesting is that even though he's the principal character, he's really only in the first couple of scenes and as in the himself, last scenes right? as himself, right. as this person, you know, Michael or Nicholas, because within very short order, he starts becoming other people, and uh, which is a great acting challenge for a singer yeah, too, really. to establish their own identity and then be someone else. Yeah. And Britomara, the devil, incredible, yeah. sexy, beautiful, seductive, mm. he also plays... <laughs> An auto mechanic, bartender, secretary, and a, a, a hairdresser at one yeah, point? Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that, how you characterized her uh, musically. Well, she was great fun to write, first of all, because, you know, frankly, the devil, I mean, the devil doesn't really have to worry about anything. The devil, I mean, she even sings an aria where it says, you know, I don't actually hear. have to do anything. You guys take care of my work for me, you know, <laughs> essentially, which is kind of timeless and true. Yeah, there, you'll hear the aria later, but... Um, I wanted her to have a beautiful, robust, rich, chocolatey, plummy sound, and also great range because I like that big lyric mezzo uh, sound. And uh, and to and explore different characters. This was actually Jean's idea at at, at the beginning that Britomara, because in the book the the devil doesn't do this, but Britomara becomes all these different characters. So what what does she sound like when she's an EMT versus an auto mechanic versus a hairdresser named Brittany, you know, from from Brooklyn, versus you know. Versus all these other th- people, and then herself, resplendent, you know? So that was a great challenge, but a great, great fun to write. And then we have uh, Diana, beautiful, popular, brilliant 24 year old woman. She's our love interest. Yes, and also a, she's always. She was always fascinated by Indiana Jones. She studied archaeology in school, which she mourns now because she doesn't know what to do with that degree. But she. <laughs> but she um, starts to figure she's the one who starts to figure out what's going on because she sees this trail of lost souls and human wreckage and confronts him at the end uh you know when he says you know who do you want me to be i could be anyone if you could love me and she tells him well you have to be yourself and he knows what that means because the deal with the devil is there is no going back well if you go back to your original body it's over you die and i get your soul And so he's faced with this existential choice. Are you going to live your life pretending to be someone else? Or are you going to die for love as yourself? Which is a beautiful operatic human theme. And she's really the, the, she's the one who grows the most in, in the story. Mm -hmm. She's fascinating. Hear her in the the music we're about to hear. I'll hear her referred to as Indy. Yeah. Indiana Jones. (laughs) Fascination. And then we have Selena, her close friend. Yes. And then we have, uh, 
Putnam, his boss, a boorish, unpleasant, wealthy, older man, who, is, who oddly is uh, Fabian's first choice when he wants to inhabit somebody else's... Well, he's convenient, uh, too. Yeah. And he knows he has a lot of money right, and freedom. So <laughs> that. Right. Grass is always greener. Though. Right. Besides, he doesn't really That's care. part of the Fair piece, me. too. It's like uh, lessons in empathy. Like, what happens when you really are in someone else's skin? What does that feel like? You know, it seems like it's going to be great to have all the things they have, but every single person he habit, inhabits, one of the first things he says was, I thought it would be different. Which is, actually mm-hmm. resonates very powerfully through the whole piece. We have Paul, very handsome young man, a drug dealer, and a bit of a brute. He's quite a flirt and has a reputation for playing the field. And he's currently dating Rachel. And there's Rachel, Paul's girlfriend. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert, she doesn't survive uh, past the intermission. <laughs> and uh, David, very unsuccessful photographer, another person that Fabian's uh, mm-hmm. body and he inhabits. Jonathan is a cop. Same thing happens to him. And we've uh, there's your uh, lineup of the scenes, but mm-hmm. we have some music from mm-hmm. um, uh, three of these scenes. Let's uh, go to uh, scene one, the auto shop. Mm-hmm. Mara as an auto mechanic. We'll hear her at the beginning. She's making her exit, and Diana meets Fabian. Do you want to say anything more about this before? We um, I don't think that's that's pretty clear. Uh, this is from a recording that was made of a workshop in Boulder uh, last year, where we had a three and a half weeks to work on the piece every day with a very talented group of young undergrads and a couple of grad students um, who really pour, like you were saying about young people who like they're all in and pouring their hearts in. And it was so exciting because with, with younger people too, you'll say, well, let's try cutting from here to here. And they're like, yes, let's try that. (laughs) Or let's try moving this over here. Yes, let's do that. And you know, so excited. And so they sing it really well and with a lot of heart. But yeah, this is when uh, Fabian has been in a huge car wreck and so it's several weeks later and he survived he's back to retrieve his journal from the car wreckage and he meets this beautiful young woman diana all right here we go for weeks trying to remember you're pretty lucky I feel a lot of things but lucky isn't one of them really because if I walked away from this if I were still breathing Thank you. 
Who wouldn't be in love with her? <laughs> right? <laughs> right away. You fall in love with this woman. She's singing hallelujah. You see, I just, writing it, I just imagine Fabian just going, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> She's amazing. <laughs> and this hallelujah theme is yes. probably important. Yeah, it's a really interesting. Gene thought of this hallelujah theme, which... Um, becomes a key word throughout the whole thing. Every time there's a transition, the first thing Fabian starts singing is hallelujah. When he disappears with Britomara, he sings hallelujah. Um, and it morphs through the piece, and it becomes a signature uh, phrase. Um, Let's listen to identified. his encounter with Britomara. Okay. Uh, uh, and in this scene now, uh, uh, Fabian tells Britomara how in his random writing, he stumbled on the words of the powerful incantation, which is a palindrome. How do you say this? Rahu Chandra Surya Airus Arnach Uhar. All right, let's let's listen. Or something like that. Let's see how Jake uh, <laughs> taxes the tenor a bit here, but uh, he manages. Yeah. Forwards and backwards in a script I had not known. I wrote and sang the words again and again until the dark magic formula yeah. to become someone else. And we've got music also from... Uh, Whoops. Sorry. There we go. Uh, from uh, the scene where uh, Fabian has now transferred his soul to the body of the handsome but somewhat callous Paul, hoping to get closer to, to Diana, who has been attracted to Paul. Charmed and surprised by Paul's changed demeanor, Diana agrees to drive him home to his apartment. Left alone, Britomara, in the guise of a bartender, remarks on how easy it is, is to get what she wants, just like watching a cube of ice melt. She doesn't have to do a thing. Is that the, the, the mezzo area? That's my favorite area. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be uh, covering that role for that. <laughs> <laughs> A little louder, please. You deserve better than me. I just thought you did. I didn't Maybe I am 
It's not over. <laughs> it's a good one, right? It's a good one. 
We'll be, yeah. uh, we'll be that doing was, that in auditions fairly soon. That was a good day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one thing is what's really brilliant also is that through this, there's all these motives that come back like crazy and all these motives that through the whole opera that are sort of all inside this very sleek, sexy area. Bluesy. You have bluesy. Yeah. You have these, all the material of the opera are going on underneath. It's very, very well crafted. Thank you. So, really beautiful Reading that uh, one of the very. winners of the net competition um, sang an aria from Moby Dick. So your eyes yeah. are out there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we've got two more minutes of, of music and then we will uh, take questions. So we're in the uh, second act now. Diana takes Fabian, who, you know, who is... Uh, not in his soul, not in his body anymore, to his wrecked car at the auto shop, hoping it will awaken a memory. Here he finds a chorus of shadows. As Fabian's soul has moved from body to body, he has left behind a trail of human wreckage, a chorus of lost souls, the empty shells of human beings Fabian's spirit has occupied and abandoned. And the one thing they can sing now is Diana's favorite word, Alleluia.
that right. actually leads to a really cool confrontation scene where Diana t- decides to take the devil head on and they sing this big duet back and forth and it, it's it's very very cool <laughs> <laughs> Diana kind of finds this new strength and power <clears throat> um, just in her determination to stop this insanity and you know you've heard a lot of solo right except for this with the yeah. chorus but one of the things that's really rare actually in modern opera that we have in this opera is that there are wonderful ensemble moments where it's not just one singer after the other mm-hmm. but they actually have great moment of ensemble which yeah. is something that we crave yeah. we crave in modern opera and we don't have as much yeah. so we've got questions coming in from okay. our audience and here's one that's appropriate to what we were just hearing are there light motifs or musical um <laughs> uh, can't read that uh, musical ideas i guess associated with the characters and if so how do you create them well we were just hearing one right there yeah um well the um yes absolutely uh, in all my operas um the hardest part of, of of writing the opera for me is finding the sound world in which all those characters in which the story is going to live which is why i deliberately choose vastly different stories each time from dead man walking to moby dick to it's a wonderful life in three decembers and and now if i were you which has this sort of magic realism and this dark poetry to it so that i can find a new sound world for them and then the characters can emerge organically and create these motifs. So Britomara has this down, 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 as far as the thing. She has this chromatic descending thing, as well as the ice cube aria, which you heard. And Diana has hallelujah. And mm-hmm. Fabian has this, this theme that morphs all through. And they, they all have some kind of theme associated with them. And it will help the audience to identify them on their journey and also to realize when in the second act, you're not sure where Fabian is until suddenly a a motif starts to appear and you're like, Oh my God, it's not that person. Is it, you know? So, uh, which, which I love. I like motifs a lot. Uh, here's a question for both of you. You mentioned the advantages of young performers. What disadvantages of young performers are there? Have you encountered, uh, in this production or elsewhere? Zero. I would say zero. Yeah. Honestly, I think that they are so well-trained now. Mm -hmm. They're so professional. They don't, you know, it used to be that, I would say, a long time ago, I would have said perhaps professionalism, understanding that we're as strong as the weakest in the groups or if you arrive late or something like that. But honestly... They come overly prepared almost. I mean, it's so wonderful. I'm not overly prepared, but they come so prepared. Right. And they're so, I can't think of one. I'm always excited to work with yeah. young artists, uh, especially in Merrill. These are young professionals, not just, you know, young artists. These are not students. And uh, and to work with them because they do, they come with this incredible enthusiasm for the work to take it on and own it because the world is theirs now. I would, <laughs> I, I would say uh, one thing is uh, perhaps at times they give so much that when you get close to the performance, sometimes you want to them, them to relax a little bit so they can keep it going. But they do not know how to give 75%. Than, yeah. They always give 120. Right, right. So sometimes that can be like, you know. <laughs> Why are they so well prepared these days? Well, I think I would I, say one thing one thing is that it's very it's competitive noticeable. now. Yes. Very competitive. That, that talented voice out of the church choir that never learned to read music, they don't have a chance anymore. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, the world is very small, and so everyone knows where the good singers are, and that, so it becomes something that you have to be well prepared. And I'll tell you what's interesting about young uh, American singers or singers trained in this country. Um, they wind up singing in every language you can think of all over the world, whereas mm-hmm. you don't necessarily hear mm-hmm. other singers from those countries coming to here to sing in English 
or, you know, and, you know, it's really remarkable. Um, the, the training in this country yeah. is extraordinary on, on every level in preparation, a, including a, acting skills. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, fan mail, Jake. I loved Moby Dick in San Jose. Thank you. Are you a daily composer or uh, in creative <laughs> bursts or on a strict schedule? Oh, uh, <laughs> Does the muse uh, visit, every, visit every day? Uh, no. I am, <laughs> I am what they would call regularly, uh, quietly hysterical. <laughs> um, I, I do try to show up every day, but whether something creative happens or not is not entirely up to me, I guess. Um, there's so many factors into it. Once I'm, the hardest part is getting into that zone, but then once the world starts of the piece starts to reveal itself to me, I can't stop thinking about it. And I can't wait to go back to the studio because I know something's going to happen each day. It's that blank page stage where things are new, which is terrifying for anyone who's doing a creative pursuit. Um, and because it's all sketches and ideas, but you just, until it starts taking shape and it starts to lock in and that zone starts to appear where you get lost in it for hours, it's pretty terrifying. I know you have a, you have a little <laughs> refuge you go to away from home to do that. I would call it a refuge, but I would call it my safe space to, to, to write. Um, it is right by some refuse. Uh, it's, it's at the, it's the back level of a, of the garage level of an old Victorian that was built as a is a percussion studio and the guy that built it decided not to do percussion anymore. So he keeps his instruments there, but it's the soundproof room at the back of the garage. So I literally walk past garbage bins every single day, <laughs> which is a harsh reminder uh, humbling. and very humbling <laughs> and go to my safe. But the great thing about it is that no one knows when I'm there. No one knows when I'm not there. No one can hear anything that I do. And that's the only way I can work. I can't work if I think someone's listening uh, even just like mm-hmm. figuring out a new idea. It's so private and personal. And I'm a very private person anyway. I mean, I, I, I like being with people and I enjoy, enjoy it, but I am an incredibly private person and the creative process is intensely private. Mm-hmm. And so I just, if, if I think that anyone can hear something I'm working on, I just, I have to stop. I freeze. Nicole, how about you when you're studying scores that takes incredible, uh, intense, yeah. uh, time I'm as well. Uh, I'm, I tend to be a little bit more regular. I mean, I think that for me to be sane, I have to start my day by studying scores. And once that's done, I can do the rest of my day. But if I if I feel a kind of an imbalance if I don't do it. so And, you know, it, it, for me, I like to work on scores a long time in advance, let them go, come back. They become old friends. I bring them back, all these things. So I'm, I'm not working on one score at a time. I have, like, many, many scores that I'm working on. But I do, I didn't, I need need quietness for sure and i need to be alone and i i tend to just work at my table um and do you work like one scene at a time or do you kind of do the whole piece at Uh, once yeah well it depends on the generally speaking i i um it's interesting because opera parallel has a intern uh, right now and uh he was he came to a rehearsal of a piece that i'm doing tomorrow night and uh he it's a it's a new work so it has and he was he's a young conductor and he was asking me how how could you rehearse this how did you hear this piece before you started to rehearse it so we sat down and i sort of 
thought talked through through my process with that one piece, and I start uh, very much like a I, looking at a sort of figuring out the bigger the bigger picture and going from the big to the small. So I start by understanding a little bit like you the sound world, what it's about, what color is that, what kind of piece it is. Then I I sort of look at how it's built and where the pillars are and all of that. I create a graph of sort of that, and then I start going into the detail. But it takes a lot of time to get into that zone of detail of that. You have a and system. Huh? I have a system, but it depends on the kind of writing. You know, Jake's writing is very different than the piece I'm doing tomorrow night. So the system is different. It's not one system for everyone. It depends on the style of the music. Do you, do you have to be home to study? Because I know I have to be in my studio. I have to be on the road. I can't do it on the road. I can do it in the plane. I can do it uh, anywhere. Actually, the plane is a great place. I get settled in my (laughs) thing. Don't disturb. (laughs) Uh, No, I can get into a zone. But do I prefer? I prefer being at home for sure. But I I can do it. I literally can't write on on the road. I can orchestrate on the road. Mm -hmm. That's a very different thing. Yeah. But the actual creation of the piece, I have to be home because I need to be completely focused on what's in my head, not Mm -hmm. what's around me. And the environment to to know exactly where everything is and not be thinking about that at yeah. all. Because if I'm like retreats when when composers take these residencies and mm-hmm, retreats, mm-hmm. I wouldn't I would not be able to write a note because I'd be thinking about everything around me, every stick of furniture, all the walls, other people walking <laughs> by, all the animals outside. I would not be writing at all. I would be like ah, that it wouldn't be quiet hysteria. It would be total hysteria. Yeah, <laughs> just enough time for one quick. quick, quick. Quick question, which is how long does it take you um, to write this piece? And then, Nicole, for, for example, for Dead Men, how long did it take you to actually get that score under your belt? Um, it usually takes anywhere from three, four, five years to from initial conception to doing a piece. And that's not entirely just writing music. That's conceiving it, developing it, working very closely with the librettist, back and forth, again and again, many different incarnations, versions, working on it. Uh, after Gene, who I work with mostly, has written for about a year, then we start conversations because the libretto has to do many things, including inspire music. And it's not ready until it inspires music. I can't just set text that doesn't inspire me. Um, but then, then it's me working and changing words and going back to Gene. And my part of it is a year and a half to two years. And then sometimes really compact, maybe sometimes a year. And then the orchestration, usually three to five months of the piece too. So you're in that phase now. Yeah. Well, I finished it. Oh, you did! It's still being, hey. pro- still, it's still being proofread. Right. It's still being proofread, but it exists. Okay. So. <laughs> Nicole, what's your process? My, well, you know, I think that I, I never have enough time. For me, the, the more, the better. So I start rehearsing. I never feel okay. I know this piece now. Done. I always come back to it. Actually, yesterday, you know, and I, I'm doing Dead Man Walking at, in Chicago in the fall, and I started looking at it last fall again. And once in a while, it's like, oh, what score today? Once I've done like the grudgy of what I need to learn, I go back to a store and I say, okay, I have two hours. What score? And then I take something and I took yeah. Dead Man Walking, um, and oh, it just feels like such an old pal and it's just <laughs> such a different thing. So, but I, I will continue until it's time to be on the on the podium and even. In between performances, I don't sort of say, okay, I've done it. It's my performance. I know how to do this piece now. I'll go back between performances. I'll think about the performance. I'll think about how, depending on if the energy that the audience has and how I can interpret it, it's never done. Okay, but I can yeah. help the singer more here in yeah, that spot. Yeah, just how it feels. Okay, this is, I think, tomorrow I'll try, we'll try this. And mm-hmm. it's never done. That's what's great about it. 
And that's what's wonderful about the work that you do. (laughs) (laughs) It's always going to be more wonderful. Well, we have to close now, but our thanks to Jake Heggie, the composer, Nicole Paimon, conductor, and Kip Crenna, dramaturg for Marilla Opera's If I Were You. We thank our audience here as well as those listening to the recording. And uh, now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating its 116th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.